the stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to episode 10 of Podcast of the Dragon. Today, for this special landmark episode, I'm going to talk to you about a special person. The only fictional character that I have ever had impure thoughts about. That matchless mage, Moraine Domadred. She does all the wrong things for all the right reasons, and I guess no one ever told her that the road to Shale Pool was paved with the best intentions. Robert Jordan once got asked to sum up his multi-million word series in six words, and he jokingly replied that because he didn't want to be wordy, he would do it in five, and said, Cultures clash, worlds change, cope. If I had to use six words to describe the Wheel of Time, it would be fuck-ups fuck-up, trauma ensues. What makes the Wheel of Time great, or one of the many things that makes it great, is Robert Jordan's commitment to realism. When it comes to that one simple theme, everyone in the story is a fuck-up. You have villains that, for all they're excellent at being evil, suck at logistics, they're rarely capable of cooperating together, and you would never know they had a common goal if they didn't tell you. Your heroes constantly fail. They show a lack of self-awareness, critical thinking, etc., 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 to infinity. They lack so much. And even your wise wizard is a colossal screw-up. So I'll beg your pardon as I bury the lead here, because it's unfair to criticize Moraine without context. Without an appreciation of her as a person and the events leading up to where she is at the beginning of the Great Hunt, it's impossible to understand why she does what she does, and if we make no effort to understand, we have no right to judge her. Let me say first that I feel many of the dumb choices that Moraine makes are founded in logic. I can see how she gets where she does. Robert Jordan never portrays her as someone whose motivations are nonsensical. She is driven by duty, a duty that is handed to her in much the same way that Rand's duty is handed to him. There is no one else to do it. It is not a perfect parallel. Anyone who has read New Spring, and I hope you have read it if you're listening to this because I'm going to talk about it a lot, Anyone who has read it knows the in-depth details behind the story that Moraine gives to Rand when she, Swan, and Varen are breaking to him the most unwelcome news that he is the Dragon Reborn. She tells him, Nearly twenty years ago, the Aegil crossed the spine of the world, the Dragon Wall, the only time they have ever done so. They ravaged through Kyrian, destroyed every army sent against them, burned the city of Kyrian itself, and fought all the way to Tarvalon. It was winter and snowing, but cold or heat mean little to an Aiel. The final battle, the last that counted, was fought outside the Shining Walls, in the shadow of Dragonmount. In three days and three nights of fighting, the Aiel were turned back. Or rather, they turned back, for they had done what they came to do, which was to kill King Layman of Kyrian for his sin against the tree. It is then that my story begins, and yours. And 
Just as an aside, it is lovely the detachment that you get from this, because you would never know that King Layman was her uncle, and not just an uncle, but an uncle that she knows well, like an uncle that she grew up with. I was one of the accepted then, Moraine said, as was our mother, the Amarlin Seed. We were soon to be raised to sisterhood, and that night we stood attendance on the then Amarlin. Her keeper of the Chronicles, Guitara Morosa, was there. Every other full sister in Tarvalon was out healing as many wounded as she could find, even the Reds. It was dawn. The fire on the hearth could not keep the cold out. The snow had finally stopped, and in the Amarlin's chambers in the White Tower we could smell the smoke of outlying villages burned in the fighting. And I'm cutting out Rand's inner narrative here. The Corethan Cycle, the prophecies of the dragon, says that the dragon will be reborn on the slopes of Dragonmount, where he died during the breaking of the world. Gitara Sedai had the foretelling sometimes. She was old, her hair as white as the snow outside, but when she had the foretelling it was strong. The morning light through the windows was strengthening as I handed her a cup of tea. The Amarlin Seed asked me what news there was from the field of battle. And Gitara Sedai started up out of her chair, her arms and legs rigid, trembling, her face as if she looked into the pit of doom at Shale Ghoul, and she cried out, He is born again. I feel him. The dragon takes his first breath on the slope of Dragon Mount. He is coming. He is coming. Light help us. Light help the world. He lies in the snow and cries like the thunder. He burns like the sun. And she fell forward into my arms, dead. And so we knew the dragon was reborn, Moraine went on. The Amarlin swore us to secrecy, we too, for she knew not all of the sisters would see the rebirth as it must be seen. She set us to searching. There were many fatherless children after that battle. Too many, but we found a story that one man had found an infant on the mountain. That was all, a man and an infant boy. So we searched on. Anyone reading New Spring knows that Moraine knew the dragon was reborn and wanted to be a part of that search. The Amaral and Tamara Spenya never intended to have her and Sawan be among her searchers. Tamara came up with a plan to get the names of all of the babies born around Dragon Mount before, during, and after the battle, basically during this window while there was snow on the ground. She did it by offering a monetary bounty as a celebration, like, yay, no more war, because of course everyone's going to come for money. And Moraine and Suwan were given the task of organizing and compiling all of the names. And while they were doing that, they surreptitiously made their own lists. But they only truly took on the duty after Tamra died, and especially after all of her other searchers were murdered by the Black Aja. At that point, she and Swan became the ones to carry the whole burden alone. So while it was a duty that Moraine very much wanted, and a duty that she was excited to take on, in the end it was her duty because there was no one else. Moraine is a black sheep, through and through. She is the daughter of Layman's unambitious and very much scorned brother, and I believe that is one of the reasons that she's able to speak so dispassionately of King Layman, because she grew up in the palace watching her uncle shit on her father. And if you have read New Spring, you see that when she learns about King Layman's death, she is not perturbed by it. 
all of the Aes Sedai are like, oh, you must be in shock about your uncle's deaths because Laman and both of his living brothers, her father having predeceased them, are all killed on the same day, and Moraine does not appear particularly upset by it. The Aes Sedai all act like Moraine is simply stunned by her uncle's deaths when, in fact, she knows that all three of her uncles were utter pieces of shit, and so she's not very sad because they were bad people. Moraine is a moral person. She's the daughter of the black sheep of the Damadred family. Her father, Dalrison, was looked down upon by his three brothers. He married the first time for political reasons to strengthen the Damadred family. Moraine has three older siblings. Her brother, Tarangale, was one child from that first political marriage. Her two sisters, Anver and Inaloin, it's never stated whether Moraine's mother was their mother or whether Tyrangale's mother was their mother, so we don't know that. But once his first wife dies, Dalverson is like, fuck it, you know, I've done my job, I've had my political marriage and made a kid, and I'm gonna do what I want now. And I don't know if Tarangale and Tigraine, the daughter of Andor, were betrothed from an early age or not, because Tarangale was seven or eight when Moraine was born, and Tigraine was five or six. So they may have been betrothed from the time that they were little kids or not. Regardless, because he was a scholarly man, Dalrazen chose to marry another scholar. He married for love for his second marriage, and he has the product of that love, which is Moraine. So Moraine was sent to Tarvalin with some very unique tools for the job that she would end up doing. She's raised not just as Kyrian in nobility, but in the ruling house, raised in the palace in this cutthroat world, a house with a dark reputation, a house that has to constantly scheme to keep control of the throne, because they've had it for a very long time and other houses want it, so thoroughly schooled in Dias de Mar. And at the same time, she is the daughter of the tarnished brother, the one who goes his own way and does what he feels is right. Her father taught her morality, not just doing what you want, whatever the cost, not just cruelty or ambition or any of the other things that seem to drive the Damadred family and give it its terrible reputation. So she went to Tarvalin, not just schooled in all of the fine details of the game of houses and ruling and the duties of nobility and the education that accompanies it, but also taught the benefit of stubbornness and knowing to go her own way or to follow her heart and to value different things from what so many of her peers growing up were taught to value. And also just to do the right thing. She has a soul. She has actual principles and it makes her formidable. In her own way, she is very much like her nephew Galad. She is devoted to a cause and she puts everything before self. And whereas Galad is concerned with what's right no matter who lives or dies, Moraine is concerned with making absolutely certain that the dragon makes it to the last battle, no matter how she must manipulate or how morally gray things get. And she flat out tells Perrin in The Dragon Reborn that she is willing to kill people to meet her ends. When she decides not to kill Simeon, the man whose brother Noam is a wolf brother, and she and Lon share their silent look when Perrin says, Hey, Simeon knows that you're Aes Sedai and he wants you to heal his brother. And Moraine kind of looks at Lon and says, Hey, no. And Lon's like, well, it's your decision. Perrin says, you were thinking Simeon couldn't tell anybody if he were dead. And Moraine says, he won't die by my order, but I can't promise that that's always going to be the case. She will do whatever must be done to meet her ends to make certain that the dragon will get to the last battle. The perception a first-time reader has of Moraine when going into the Great Hunt is of someone powerful and mysterious. 
We get that from her point of view, and also just from how other people perceive her. Mostly Rand, but also from the points of view from Perrin and a little bit from Nynaeve. However much Nynaeve hates her, she still comes across as coolly powerful and mysterious. You never really know Moraine. How much a person likes her seems dependent upon how much sympathy they have for her as far as her having to cope with the dumbassery of the Two Rivers people. So someone who feels bad for the Emmons Fielders being manipulated by Moraine and forced into leaving, denied information, and told they have no choices, those people can see Moraine as a cold and calculating bitch and really dislike her. And someone who thinks that Rand and his friends are so moronic that it's shocking they're not dead from all the stupid decisions that they make. And as an aside, my wife is partway into the eye of the world. She's just into the aftermath of Shatter Logoth with the party being split. And she is so over their stupidity to the point where she almost doesn't want to read on to Rand and Matt's chapters because she's like, they are so fucking dumb. A person with that perception is much more likely to pity Moraine for having to deal with the constant idiocy of the Two Rivers people and to see Moraine as a combination of a total badass and a saint. The very first point of view we get from Moraine is the last POV in the Eye of the World. She is eavesdropping on Rand and Egwene talking, as Rand is saying that he is planning on leaving so he can go somewhere that he won't hurt anyone. And he is also bitterly saying, as Egwene says, I'm sure Moraine said I will not like you just going off. After, after what you've done, you deserve some reward. Moraine does not know I am alive. I have done what she wanted and that's an end to it. She doesn't even speak to me when I go to her. Not that I've tried to stay close to her, but she's avoided me. She won't care if I go and I don't care if she does. Moraine is still not completely well, Rand. And in listening to this, it says from Moraine's point of view, In Agalmar's private garden, under a thick bower dotted with white blossoms, Moraine shifted on her bedchair. The fragments of the seal lay on her lap, and the small gem she sometimes wore in her hair spun and glittered on its gold chain from the ends of her fingers. The faint blue glow faded from the stone, and a smile touched her lips. It had no power in itself, the stone, but the first use she had ever learned of the one power, as a girl in the royal palace in Kyrien, was using the stone to listen to people when they thought they were too far off to be overheard. The prophecies will be fulfilled, the Aes Sedai whispered. The dragon is reborn. So there she is, even not being totally healed from her fight with the Forsaken. There's a sense of poise and formidability. She's just very much a powerful person. And she's also a mystery. You read her perspective and it's a brilliant example of Robert Jordan's abilities with point of view in a completely different way. I love to gush about how RJ is so good at in just a few sentences, a few paragraphs, a few pages sometimes, showing a character and who they really are. And his talent is so great there that for him to be able to, when he is writing Moraine, make her so enigmatic when you're so used to him turning people into open books. With Moraine, he walks a line where she feels like a real person, but it's like she's closed off even to herself. Like she keeps secrets to herself or she does not contemplate things in a way that has the level of openness that so many other characters have. 
So, because even internally, she is so very private and closed off. She has that aura of mystery, even when you're seeing the world through her eyes. And it's just, it's a very well done. And even in New Spring, she has that flavor. And one of the things that I think makes New Spring such a fabulous piece of writing is the fact that she is still the same coolly enigmatic person that you get in the later story that he actually wrote earlier, where she is an older person. But she's all of that, and she's also young. And because Moraine became Aes Sedai in such a short amount of time, she was only novice and accepted for a total of six years. So she was 22 when she became an Aes Sedai, which is awfully young. So he shows you a Moraine that is naive and immature and closed and mysterious at the same time, and it's just really well done. While I'm technically covering The Great Hunt here, I'll be referencing New Spring a bunch because you don't get a lot of Moraine's point of view in the regular series. And so to know who she is, it's helpful to rely heavily on the prequel because it has so much from her point of view. And it tells you so much about her because it's from a time before her life was so completely, utterly consumed by her search for Ran. When you next get her point of view, after that little snippet where she's eavesdropping on Rand and Egwene in the garden, you get it in Chapter 4 of The Great Hunt, the chapter called Summoned. In this chapter, Moraine is in a much less poised frame of mind than we see her at the end of The Eye of the World. There, though she's still weak because she's still healing, she has this aura of authority. She's self-assured. She smiles as she's hearing Rand's plans to flee. You don't get the impression she's concerned about anything. She seems cool, calm, and in control. Here, in the chapter called Summoned, she is not pleased with the surprise visit from the Amarillan seat, and it makes her anxious and angry. It says... Her large, dark eyes could appear as sharp as a hawk's when she was angry. They seemed to pierce the silvered glass now. She's making certain of herself in the mirror so she can look perfectly presentable, almost like she's checking her armor and making sure there's no chinks, that she's just this perfect, unassailable facade. And a little later it says, Moraine had a commanding grace and calm presence that could dominate any gathering, a manner and grain growing up in the royal palace of Kyrian had been heightened, not submerged, by still more years as an Aes Sedai. She knew she might need every bit of it today, yet much of the calm was on the surface today. There must be trouble or she would not have come herself, she thought, for at least the tenth time, but beyond that lay a thousand questions more. What trouble and who did she choose to accompany her? Why here? Why now? It cannot be allowed to go wrong now. Up until this point, we've seen the forces that Moraine works against as very straightforward. She fights against evil. We've gotten hints of factional politics within the Aes Sedai. We heard a little bit of discussions of the Ajas and a bit of the polarity between Blue Aja versus Red Aja. After Lon Moraine and Nynaeve rescue Perrin and Egwene from the White Cloaks, and Lon is talking about Elias and how the Red Aja went after him, Lon says, You must understand, there are factions within Tarvalon. Some would fight the Dark One one way, some another. The goal is the same, but the differences, the differences can mean lives changed or ended, the lives of men or nations. So prior to Moraine being summoned before the Amarlin, we have a vague idea that there are political struggles in Tarvalon. 
but despite that, there really isn't a sense all throughout the first book that Moraine is working for anyone. It always kind of feels like she's doing her own thing, because she kind of is. Technically, she's answering to the Amarlin seat, but there's really this feel that she is someone who will do whatever the fuck she wants to meet her end goal. And if that means being utterly insubordinate, she'll do it, and you can tell that about her. There's a sense that she is someone who works best with minimal guidance and isn't really interested in answering to people, which, again, kind of leads to the question that I was asking in my episode The Breast of the World. Did Moraine really plan to bring the dragon to Tarvalon? I'm thinking that maybe she did it first before everything went down at the eye, but she had to have been working on a different plan afterwards because if the plan was to go to Tarvalon, what were they waiting for? They had been in Faldara for a month. She had had time to heal. They've been hanging. They've been twiddling their thumbs. What were they waiting for? Maybe she didn't know what to do next. Maybe she was waiting for the dragon to take the wheel again. Maybe she had originally planned on having him in Tarvalon before he knew that he could channel, and the fact that he found out before she got him there derailed everything, and she was just kind of waiting for Taviran and the pattern to set the path, the way that it did in Camelon, when their path just kind of veered off sideways and took them to the eye of the world. And maybe she felt like the Amarlin showing up was fucking that all up. Nonetheless, her first point-of-view chapter in The Great Hunt, which is called Summoned, there's this definite feeling that things have gone sideways. We feel like Moraine is in trouble. Robert Jordan does a good job of flavoring her voice with the sense of anxiety without ever making her seem truly fearful. Instead, it feels like she's just trying to roll with the punches. We're seeing this different side of her where it's not just that she's adaptable, like, oh, there's a Drakkar, I'll cover us in fog. You know, oh, there are more Trollocs than we can actually fight, so I'm going to make a firewall and redirect our scent so we can sneak off and hide in a murder city. Or, oh, Camelon is surrounded, we'll slip out through this pitch-dark wormhole that terrifies everyone but me because I'm Moraine and I'm metal as fuck. All of her previous adaptability that we were exposed to was based upon her use of combat magic or her skills at sneaking and hiding or her tremendous wealth of knowledge. Now we're seeing a more political adaptability. We see her reaching for other more subtle weapons. It says, The great serpent ring on her right hand caught the light dully as she touched the delicate golden chain fastened in her dark hair, which hung in waves to her shoulders. A small, clear blue stone dangled from the chain in the middle of her forehead. Many in the White Tower knew of the trick she could do using that stone as a focus. It was only a polished bit of blue crystal, just something a young girl had used in her first learning with no one to guide her. That girl had remembered tales of Angreal, and even more powerful Sangreal, those fabled remnants of the Age of Legends that allowed Aes Sedai to channel more of the one power than any could safely handle unaided, remembered and thought some such focus was required to channel at all. Her sisters in the White Tower knew a few of her tricks and suspected others, including some that did not exist, some that had shocked her when she learned of them. The things she did with the stone were simple and small, if occasionally useful, the kind a child would imagine, but if the wrong women had accompanied the Amarlin, the crystal might put them off balance because of the tales. So, Moraine is very concerned with who has come with the Amarlin. Her political position is obviously not very strong, and it gives the first inkling of what a snake pit the tower is. And 
we kind of see that because when Anaya and Leandrin come for her, it says, Anaya's blunt face broke into a smile as soon as Moraine opened the door. That smile gave her the only beauty she would ever have, but it was enough. Almost everyone felt comforted, safe, and special when Anaya smiled at them. The lights shine on you, Moraine. It's good to see you again. Are you well? It has been so long. My heart is lighter for your presence, Anaya. That was certainly true. It was good to know she had at least one friend among the Aes Sedai who had come to Faldara. The light illumine you. This is great, because it shows Moraine to be very human. It's not just that she has an ally among the Aes Sedai. She has a friend, someone who makes her feel safe and comforted and special. And Moraine, who, despite the fact that she's mysterious and strong and powerful and independent and metal as fuck, responds to a motherly woman who is her friend. And that's kind of cool, because you don't get a lot of moments where Moraine seems exceptionally vulnerable or exceptionally human. And so giving us these small moments when Moraine, who in some ways is RJ's like ultimate soldier, when she gets to be a little bit more human, it's really great. She has not just an ally, but a friend. And then you have Leandrin, who's just a shithead. And I think he does that contrast between her and Anaya for a number of reasons. Partly just to introduce us to Leandrin, and partly to see a blue and a red together being oppositional. But also just, you get the whole impression that Moraine finds this incredibly tedious. She isn't here for it. She has neither the time nor the patience for the bullshit machinations of Tarvalon. The broken seal in her pouch means that all of this is absurd and a waste of her time, and she was over it before it even began. And I have this kind of sensation like, you go to work and you find out that some kind of bullshit inspection is going on or some higher up is coming down to see how everything is functioning it's just that oppressive feeling of like what a colossal drag because everything functions so much better when the higher ups fuck off and leave you alone to do your thing and that's just kind of the overall impression is like people who are meddling make everything more difficult and moraine doesn't need that right now because everything is difficult enough she's got the dragon reborn with her and she's dealing with him and he's difficult and part of the way that Moraine as a fuck-up is fucking up with Rand is that she's making everything much harder for herself with him. But she's dealing with the headache that is Rand in his current state. Having Tarvalon headaches come her way is bullshit as far as she's concerned. As she's walking with Anaya and Leandrin to answer her summons to the Amarlin seat and they're conversing, we get, This time, Moraine, Anaya said, you have been gone from Tarvalon too long. Much too long. Tarvalon misses you. Your sisters miss you, and you were needed in the White Tower. Some of us must work in the world, Moraine said gently. I will leave the Hall of the Tower to you, Anaya. If this is the longest period ever that Moraine has been gone from Tarvalon, she has to have been gone for more than five years. We can assume as much based upon certain events in New Spring. Two days after Rand's birth, after the death of King Laman and his brothers, we get this scene as Moraine and Suwan, who are still accepted, are sorting and copying babies' names for the bounty, and surreptitiously making notes of ones that could be the dragon for their own records. Shortly after mid-morning, Jarna Malari swept into the room, elegant in dark gray silk with slashes of white at her temples that added to her commanding presence, sapphires in her long black hair and more around her neck. 
The silken fringe on her shawl was so long that it nearly touched the floor with the shawl resting on her shoulders. Jarna was a sitter for the gray. Sitters rarely seemed to notice accepted, but she motioned to Moraine. Walk with me a brief while, child. In the corridor, Jarna strolled slowly in silence for a time, and Moraine was content to have it so. Light! What could a sitter want with her? A task to be done or a message to be carried would have been mentioned right away. In any case, accepted did not try to hurry sisters, as well attempt hurrying the Omerlin as a sitter. The drafts that made the stand lamps flicker did not bother Jarna, of course, but Moraine began to wish she had her cloak. I hear you were troubled by your uncle's deaths, the sitter said at last. That is understandable. Moraine made a sound that she hoped Jarna took for agreement. Isodai answers were all very well, but she wanted to avoid outright lying, if she could. She tried not to strain for every inch, but the top of her head only came to the other woman's shoulder. What did the woman want? I fear that affairs of state never wait on grief, Moraine. Tell me, child, who in House Damadred do you think will ascend to the sun throne now that Layman and his brothers are dead? Tripping over her own feet, Moraine staggered and would have fallen had Jarna not steadied her with a hand. A sitter was asking her opinion on politics? Of her native land, to be sure, but sitters knew more of most countries' politics than their own rulers did. Jarna's liquid brown eyes gazed at her serenely, patiently, waiting. "'I have given the matter no thought, I said I,' Moraine said truthfully. "'I think perhaps the sun-throne will pass to another house, but I cannot say which.' "'Perhaps,' Jarna murmured, half-lidding her eyes for the space of the word. "'House Damadred has acquired an ill reputation that laymen only made worse.' Moraine frowned before she could stop herself, and hurriedly smoothed away the lines, hoping that Jarna had not noticed. It was true. Her father had been alone among his generation and lacking a dark character, men and women alike. The preceding generations had been nearly as bad when not worse. The deeds done by House Damadred had blackened the name, but she did not like hearing anyone say it. "'Your half-brother Tarangale is denied by his marriage to the Queen of Andor,' Jarna went on. "'A ridiculous law, but he cannot change it unless he is king, and he cannot become king unless it is changed. What of your elder sisters? Are they not well thought of? The taint seems largely to have skipped your generations.' "'Well thought of, but not for the throne,' Moraine replied. "'Anber cares for nothing except horses and hawking.' and no one would trust her temper, far worse than Moraine's had ever been, on the sun-throne, but that was something she would say only to Swan. And if Inloin gained the throne, everyone knows affairs of state would come a poor second at best to playing with her children, likely because in playing with her children she had forgotten all about the affairs of state. Inloin was a warm and loving mother, but the truth was she was not terribly bright, although very stubborn, a dangerous combination and a ruler. No one will support either for the throne, I said I, even within House Damadred. Jarna peered down into Moraine's eyes for a long moment. I see, Jarna said finally. You may return to your work, child. What did she want? Swan asked when Moraine returned to the room. I am not sure, she said slowly, taking up her pen. That was the first lie she had ever told Swan. She was all too afraid that she knew exactly what Jarna wanted. By the time they laid the completed copies on the rose-carved writing-table that had been Gitara's and the spacious anteroom to the Amerlin study, six more sitters had come to take Moraine aside, one from each Aja, all with very much the same questions. 
Sutama Wrath, beautiful and hard-eyed enough to make Moraine flinch, put it to her directly. Have you never thought, Sutama said casually, toying with the red fringe of her shawl, of being Queen of Kyrian yourself? Shortly after this scene, Moraine and Swanner raised Aes Sedai, and not long after that, Tamara Ospenya is murdered by the Black Aja, after they torture out of her the news that the dragon is reborn and the names of her chosen searchers. The new Amarillan, Sierran Bayou, gives Moraine strict orders not to leave Tarvalon, because she and the Hall fully intend to see Moraine on the Sun Throne. Moraine, being metal as fuck, pieces out as quickly as she can. It is early spring of 979, hence New Spring. Because she was in strict disobedience of Sierra's orders, she was facing being birched coming back. If you're not positive what birching is, it's taking three pieces of wood and tying them into a triangle, lashing your hands at the apex and your ankles at each other apex? I don't know, geometry wasn't my thing. And then being beaten with a stick. Obviously, Moraine didn't want that. She got to watch at least two people be birched right after Sierra was raised to the Amarillan seat because Sierra was an awful bitch. The Wheel of Time companion says that the Red Aja murdered Sierra and Bayou in 984, and they murdered her because she was about to uncover their pogrom that they were engaged in, murdering male channelers, um, the thing that became known as the Vileness. Archie only named two of the seven sitters who take Moraine aside to feel her out about ascending the Sun Throne, and he was very purposeful in the two that he named. The first, Jarna Malari, who is a Grey, was also the head of the Black Aja at the time. She was responsible for starting the pogrom, she was responsible for the decision to torture and murder Tamara Ospenya, and she was murdered by Ashamael in 983 because he was angry that she had tried to kill the dragon. He actually wiped out a whole bunch of Black Aja leadership because he was pissed about it, which left the field clear for Alviaran to take her place. Sutama Wrath is the other sitter he names. Uh, she was also involved in the pogrom, and uh, she basically took the fall. She and the other two red sitters, uh, Tovin Ghazal, who Loghain ends up bonding, and a third... The third one's name is Lyrene, I believe. The three of them took the fall. They were exiled once it came to light. And Elida calls them back once she takes over the Amarillan seat, once she has her coup. Um, and Sutama Wrath is raised to the highest. Uh, she is the head of the Red Aja after Galena Kasbin is presumed dead after Demise Wells. That is a lot of extra information to say that I don't think Moraine returned to the tower before Sierra and Bayou died or was murdered, so she was gone at least five years the first time that she left. I don't think Anaya's words saying, this time you've been gone too long, necessarily mean that this particular time is the longest that Moraine has ever been gone. That seems unlikely, all things considered. Regardless, it's made very clear to us that Moraine is not highly thought of by her fellow Aes Sedai. Even her friend Anaya is gently chiding her, basically like, you're irresponsible. You've been gone too long. You need to get your fucking ass back and, like, take your job seriously. And Leandrin is fucking super aggro. As they're talking and trading news, finally Leandrin says, Enough of idle talk, the honey-haired woman broke in angrily. 
For you, Moraine, the Amerlin waits. She took three quick strides ahead of the others and threw open one of a pair of tall doors. For you, the Amerlin will have no idle talk. So that's aggressive, and you get the feeling that she's trying to upset Moraine. And then Moraine goes into the added room, and you get fewer than half a dozen of the Aes Sedai who had accompanied the Amerlin were there. Varen Mathwin and Seraphel of the Brown Aja did not look up at Moraine's entrance. Seraphel was intently reading an old book with a worn, faded leather cover, handling its tattered pages carefully, while plump Varen, sitting cross-legged beneath an arrow slit, held a small blossom up to the light and made notes and sketches in a precise hand in a book balanced on her knee. She had an open ink pot on the floor beside her and a small pile of flowers on her lap. The Brown sisters concerned themselves with little besides seeking knowledge. Moraine sometimes wondered if they were really aware of what was going on in the world, or even immediately around them. The three other women already in the room turned, but they made no effort to approach Moraine, only looked at her. One, a slender woman of the Yellow Aja, she did not know. She spent too little time in Tarvalon to know all the Aes Sedai, although their numbers were no longer very great. She was acquainted with the two remaining, however— Carlinia was as pale of skin and cold of manner as the white fringe on her shawl, the exact opposite in every way of dark, fiery Alana Masvani of the green, but they both stood and stared at her without speaking, without expression. Alana sharply snugged her shawl around her, but Carlinia made no move at all. The slender yellow sister turned away with an air of regret. The light illumine you all, sisters, Moraine said. No one answered. She was not sure Seraphel or Varen had even heard. Where are the others? There was no need for them all to be there. Most would be resting in their rooms, freshing from the journey, but she was on edge now, all the questions she could not ask running through her head. None of it showed on her face. The inner door opened, and Liana appeared without her gilt-flamed staff. The keeper of the Chronicles was as tall as most men, willowy and graceful, still beautiful, with a coppery skin and short, dark hair. She wore a blue stole, a hand wide instead of a shawl, for she sat in the hall of the tower, though as keeper, not to represent her Aja. There you are, she said briskly to Moraine, and gestured to the door behind her. Come, sister, the Amaralyn seat is waiting. She spoke naturally in a clipped, quick way that never changed, whether she was angry or joyful or excited. As Moraine followed Liana in, she wondered what emotion the keeper was feeling now. Liana pulled the door to behind them. It banged shut with something of the sound of a cell door closing. The whole scene is very uncomfortable, and a first-time reader who doesn't know that Sawan is a co-conspirator gets this feel of Moraine entering a lion's den. I remember reading it the first time and getting to the end of it when Swan is finally makes Liana leave and being shocked when Swan throws her arms around Moraine and hugs her and just this, like, rippling realization of, oh, they're friends. Oh, shit, they're co-conspirators. Oh, Moraine isn't in this alone. Because the whole flavor all along has been like Moraine is doing this all on her own. And all of these other Aes Sedai are involved in this, who have shown up in Faldara, are incredibly unwelcome. They're basically cock-blocking right now, and they all need to fuck off. And Moraine does not have the patience for it. And honestly, even though Swan is her co-conspirator... You don't even really get the impression that Moraine's got much patience for her, either. On a reread, the scene with the Amerlin before Liana is sent from the room is really interesting, and depending on the number of rereads and how hard a person nerds out on the intricacies of Aes Sedai politics, it has a ton of layers. 
After answering Moraine's pleasantry about, hope you had a great journey with, no, it was a shitty journey. We flooded everything to get here and people are pissed. Swan's first real news that she gives to Moraine is that Elida is in Tarvalon. She came with Elaine and Gowan. Robert Jordan makes certain that we don't forget about scary Elida and has the Amarlin let Moraine know, yo, she's not chilling in Camelin anymore. She had to make sure that important people knew that you were up to no good. It says, Elida had another reason for coming to Tarvalon, daughter. She sent the same message by six different pigeons to make sure I received it. And to whom else in Tarvalon she sent pigeons, I can only guess. Then came herself. She told the Hall of the Tower that you are meddling with a young man who is Taviran and dangerous. More dangerous than any man since Arthur Hawkwing, she said. She has the foretelling sometimes, you know, and her words carried weight with the Hall. For Lyanna's sake, Moraine made her voice as meek as she could. That was not very meek, but it was the best she could do. I have three young men with me, mother, but none of them is a king, and I doubt very much if any of them even dreams of uniting the world under one ruler. No one has dreamed Outer Hawkwing's dream since the War of the Hundred Years. Yes, daughter, village youth, so Lord Agomar tells me, but one of them is Taviran. The Amarlin's eyes strayed to the flattened cube again. It was put forward in the hall that you should be sent into retreat for contemplation. This was proposed by one of the sitters for the green Aja, with the other two nodding approval as she spoke. Liana made a sound of disgust, or perhaps frustration. She always kept in the background when the Amarlin seat spoke, but Moraine could understand the small interruption this time. The green Aja had been allied with the blue for a thousand years. Since Arthur Hawkwing's time, they had all but spoken with one voice. I have no desire to hoe vegetables in some remote village, mother. Nor will I, whatever the Hall of the Tower says. It was further proposed, also by the Greens, that your care during the retreat should be given to the Red Aja. The Red Sitters tried to appear surprised, but they looked like fisher birds who knew the catch was unguarded. The Amarlins sniffed. The Reds professed reluctance to take custody of one not of their Aja, but said they would accede to the wishes of the Hall. Despite herself, Moraine shivered. That would be most unpleasant, Mother. It would be worse than unpleasant, much worse. The Reds were never gentle. She put the thought of it firmly to one side to deal with later. Mother, I cannot understand this apparent alliance between the Greens and the Reds. Their beliefs, their attitudes toward men, their views of our very purposes, as I said, I are completely opposite. A Red and a Green cannot even talk to each other without coming to shouts. Things change, daughter. Four of the last five women raised Amarlin have come from the Blue. Perhaps they feel that is too many, or that the blue way of thinking no longer suffices in a world full of false dragons. After a thousand years, many things change. The Amarlin grimaced and spoke as if to herself. Old walls weaken and old barriers fall. She shook herself, and her voice firmed. There was yet another proposal, one that still smells like weak old fish on the jetty. Since Liana is of the Blue Aja, and I came from the Blue, it was put forward that sending two sisters of the Blue with me on this journey would give the Blue four representatives, proposed in the hall to my face, as if they were discussing repairing the drains. Two of the white sitters stood against me, and two green. The yellow muttered among themselves, and would not speak for or against. One more saying, Nay, and your sisters Anaya and Mygan would not be here. There was even some talk open talk that I should not leave the White Tower at all. Moraine felt a greater shock than on hearing that the Red Aja wanted her in their hands. 
Whatever Aja she came from, the keeper of the Chronicles spoke only for the Amerlin, and the Amerlin spoke for all Aes Sedai and all Ajas. That was the way it had always been, and no one had ever suggested otherwise, not in the darkest days of the Trolloc Wars, not when Arthur Hawkwing's armies had penned every surviving Aes Sedai inside Tarvalon. Above all, the Amerlin seat was the Amerlin seat. Every Aes Sedai was pledged to obey her. No one could question what she did or where she chose to go. This proposal went against 3,000 years of custom and law. Thanks to secondary source material, it's possible to know 20 of the 21 Aes Sedai who were in Swan's Hollow of the Tower. Nearly every one of them goes on to have some kind of role in the story. Four of them are Black Aja. Five hunt the Black Aja inside the White Tower in what is, in my personal opinion, one of the best minor subplots in the whole series. Eight of them become sitters in the Rebel Hall of the Tower. Five of those eight are actually sent to Saladar by the Aja heads in an attempt to control and defuse the situation in the hopes the rebellion will fizzle and the sisters return to the Tower. The four Dark Front sitters are Sador of the Yellow Aja, Valina of the White Aja, Ivanalane of the Grey Aja, and Taylene Minley of the Green. My best guess is that Taylene, under instructions from higher up the chain in the Black Aja, put forth the suggestion that Moraine be taken into custody and given over to the Reds. The other green sitters are both loyalists. In a year, Rubinda will stand to depose Suwan, and though Faisal was not actually called to vote for her deposition, presumably because Elida felt she couldn't count on her vote, and that's not sketchy as fuck, she only left the tower for Saladar under the orders of Adelorna Bastine, the Green's Captain General. None of the Red Sitters in the Hall, which is Pavara, Teslin, and Javindra, are dark friends. But the highest, the head of the Reds, Galena Kasbin, certainly is, and the members of the Red Aja basically consider her the equal of the Amarlin Sea. So if she told the Sitters, we want more rain in our hands, and the dark friends in the Green Aja were to put it forth, this alliance that is so shocking to Moraine is undoubtedly a dark friend alliance. And so the goal is most likely to get hold of Moraine and dispose of her. They will send her out to the country, and rather than hoe vegetables, she'll dig her own grave. Five of the sitters in the hall were also sitters when Moraine first left the tower in violation of Sierra and Vayu's order that she not leave. And so her disobedience and her general unwillingness to fall in line is well known. And so with assholes like Elida making waves and with the Black Aja to help, Suwan has to deal with all the fallout. As she says to Moraine, Most of my troubles with the hall stem from you. Even the Greens wonder why I haven't called you to the Tower and taught you a little discipline. Half the sisters with me think you should be handed over to the Reds, and if that happens, you will wish you were a novice again, with nothing worse to look forward to than a switching. Light! If any of them remembered we were friends as novices, I'd be there beside you. We had a plan. A plan, Moraine. Locate the boy and bring him to Tarvalin, where we could hide him, keep him safe, and guide him. Since you left the Tower, I've had only two messages from you. Two! I feel as if I'm trying to sail the fingers of the dragon in the dark. One message to say you were entering the two rivers, going to this village, this Emmons field. Soon, I thought, he's found and she'll have him in hand soon. Then word from Camelin to say you were coming to Shinar, to Faldara, not Tarvalin. Faldara, with a blight almost close enough to touch. Faldara, where Trollocs raid and Murdwell ride as near every day as makes no difference. Nearly twenty years of planning and searching, and you toss all our plans practically in the Dark One's face. Are you mad? 
and in response Moraine says, The pattern pays no heed to human plans, Swan. With all our scheming, we forgot what we were dealing with. Taviran. Elida is wrong. Artapain Dragtanrial was never this strongly Taviran. The wheel will weave the pattern around this young man as it wills, whatever our plans. We never knew what Moraine's new plan is that Swan derailed by showing up in Faldara. But at the beginning of the book, Moraine is waiting. There's this limbo in place that Swan breaks either coincidentally or because she accidentally sets something in motion when she shows up. Nynaeve and Egwene need to go to Tarvalon, but there's no real mention of the boys, and I'm wondering if Moraine was hung up on how to do Matt's healing, like wondering how to acquire aid with minimal complications. Like, does she just need to direct Matt to go to Tarvalon? Was she considering seeing if she couldn't send to other sisters in the Borderlands to try to get help? Was she going to go to Tarvalon with him, Nynaeve, and Egwene, and just send Perrin and Rand to travel to Ilion with the Horn, or like, what exactly? The plan that she gives to Swan before everything goes to shit and the horn gets stolen is that she will have Ran, Matt, and Perrin, because now there are Aes Sedai in the keep who can heal Matt, she will have them travel and bring the horn of Valir to Ilion and present it to the Council of Nine. It says, And when Ran needs me in Ilion, I will be there, and I will see that it is he who presents the horn to the Council of Nine and the Assemblage. I will see to everything in Ilion. Swan, the Ilioners would follow the dragon and Baalzamon himself if he came bearing the horn of Valir, and so will the greater part of those gathered for the hunt. The true dragon reborn will not need to gather a following before nations move against him. He will begin with a nation around him and an army at his back. So, I'm wondering if she was just waiting for something to happen that would kick that into motion or debating about what to do with Matt. There's no real concrete answer as to what plans that the Admiral ruined. For all that Swan is Moraine's greatest friend, Moraine is used to operating alone. And at this point, she probably thinks that as little White Tower influence as possible is preferable. And so she wants to use Swan to keep the hull of the tower off her back. There's real anxiety in Swan's words that she's yelling at Moraine about sitting aside while she can do nothing. In New Spring, there was a sense of anxiety and anticipation throughout. The reader reading it provided that they don't make the terrible mistake of reading it first before any of the other books knows that they won't find Rand for 19 years. But Swan and Moraine are operating as if they'll find the Dragon Reborn any day. At the end of the book, they execute a bold scheme where Moraine presents herself at the Ice Daishar Palace in Chachin, Candor, as Moraine Domadred, with Swan playing her serving woman, so that Swan could sneak in to interview a new widow who is in seclusion for her mourning, a woman whose son was born inside of Dragonmount. And then Moraine has to quickly switch her plans up and be open about being Aes Sedai, because Marian Redhill, the former mistress of novices under Tamara Aspania, is there. And she ends up being Black Aja, and it turns out that the male channeler Pogrom has already begun, because the Black Aja knows that the dragon has been reborn, they just don't know when. And so they're killing men who are lucky, because male channelers are often just thought to be lucky, and they're killing all kinds of men. They're killing anyone who could possibly be the dragon. 
And one of the reasons that Ishmael chooses to kill Jarna Malari, the gray sitter who is the head of the Black Aja, when he's finally released enough that he's capable of influencing the world a few years down the road, is because he wants to use the dragon. And he's not happy that they're trying to kill him and that they've been trying to kill him and engaging in this channeler pogrom this whole time. So it says after Swan puzzles out that the Black Aja is killing anyone who might be a male channeler. We still have the task, Moraine told her. I know, Swan said slowly. I just never thought. Well, when there's work to do, you haul nets or gut fish. That lacked her usual force, though. We can be on our way to our fell before noon. You go back to the tower, Moraine said. Together they could search no faster than one could alone, and if they had to be apart, what better place for Swan than working for Satalia Delarme, seeing the reports of all the blue Aja eyes and ears? While Moraine hunted for the boy, Swan could learn what was happening in every land, and knowing what she was looking for, she could spot any sign of the Black Aja or the Dragon Reborn. Swan has been, for all of her political power, uniquely powerless while Moraine works in the world. She spent ten years working as the head of the Blue Aja's Eyes and Ears, or, you know, working first as the apprentice for Satalia Delarme, and then taking over, and then she spends another ten years as the Amarlin Sea. So she is a powerful woman, but all along she's just been waiting and waiting for Moraine to find the boy and looking for any information that she can find to assist Moraine. But for the most part, she's just sitting on the sidelines and twiddling her thumbs, unable to do anything. And in reading New Spring, before they are raised, Swan, prior to being co-opted by Salatalia Delarme, while she's still unaccepted, she has this goal of going out and seeing the world. She never wanted to be stuck in the tower. She never wanted to work in politics. She wanted to be a hands-on blue sister out meddling in causes out in the world. So however talented that she is in politics, it was not her first choice as something to do. This combo of anxiety and knowing that the Dragon Reborn had finally been found and then having Moraine bring him to the Borderlands and Swan's like, wait, what the fuck? That was not the plan. It mobilized her to do something, finally to do something, because she couldn't just sit by anymore. She was like, all along she could do nothing because they didn't know where he was. And finally, because Moraine has ran, Swan is like, okay, no, I can't. I can't sit by anymore. Not when something has finally been done. Something has finally been found. I can't just sit by while you run off the light knows where. Especially not when I'm having all kinds of people all up on my dick about you and your disobedience and your general just disregard for I said I rules and your general shitheadedness. So Swan goes to confront Moraine by coming to Shinar, and I've always wondered, like, what excuse she gave to leave and go to the Borderlands, like they never say. Maybe she was just like, woo, I'm gonna go on a visit of state, like an impromptu visit of state, because that's never awkward. But she goes. She has it out with Moraine. She asks for confirmation that they finally found what they've been searching for. And Moraine says, Randall Thor will stand before the world as the dragon reborn. The Amarlin shuddered. Randall Thor. It does not sound like a name to inspire fear and set the world on fire. She gave another shiver and rubbed her arms briskly, but her eyes suddenly shone with a purposeful light. If he is the one, then we truly may have time enough. But is he safe here? 
I have two red sisters with me, and I can no longer answer for green or yellow either. The light can sue me. I can't answer for any of them, not with this. Even Varen and Seraphel would leap on him the way they would a scarlet adder in a nursery. He is safe for the moment. The Amarlin waited for her to say more. The silence stretched until it was plain she would not. Finally, the Amarlin said, You say our old plan is useless. What do you suggest now? I have purposely let him think I no longer have any interest in him, that he may go where he pleases for all of me. She raised her hands as the Amarlin opened her mouth. It was necessary, Swan. Randall Thor was raised in the two rivers, where Manetherin's stubborn blood flows in every vein, and his own blood is like rock beside clay compared to Manetherin's. He must be handled gently, or he will bolt in any direction but the one we want. Moraine, using reverse psychology on Rand because she wants him to hang around, is a logical choice, given what she knows of him. And I personally think that she was the one who gave the first order to shut down the keep, the mystery order that prevented Rand from leaving when the Amarlin first arrived. Inktar doesn't know what Rand is talking about when he meets up with him in the dungeon as they're lifting Matt and Egwene out on stretchers, and he tells him that Agamar has ordered that no one may come in or out of the keep. Agamar has ordered that no one may come in or out of the keep after the shadow spawn attack on the horn is stolen. Ran asks him, hey, what about the previous order? And Ingtar says, what the fuck? Someone told you wrong. I think Moraine gave the order to secure the keep. I think she saw the Aes Sedai coming and knew that Rand would freak out. And so she told Agamar to bar the gates because Agamar would not have questioned her about it. He would have just been like, sure, you know, you're Aes Sedai, whatever. So keeping Rand in the keep was damage control, since Moraine didn't know why Swan had come, and she wasn't very happy about it. She was just kind of like, well, fuck, this is going to make him bold. All along, I've been very delicately playing this game, kind of dancing around, staying out of reach, you know, not answering his questions, refusing to talk to him, because that's how I'm keeping him from leaving, is basically like he wants to talk to me, he's frustrated that I won't talk to him, and so he's not leaving because he wants something from me and I'm not giving it to him. But this will make him bold. And so she tells Agamar, yo, you need to shut the keep, you need to lock it up, and I don't even think she had to give him a specific reason for it. So manipulating Rand by not talking to him and kind of keeping him hooked by leaving him hanging was a smart choice in the sense that it succeeded in her immediate goal. A month later, he's still in Valdara, and it was definitely a smarter way to handle him than, like, Swan would have tried to bully him. From what we learn of Swan later, she would have tried bullying and browbeating and fear and failed badly. But what Moraine does is in many ways an even worse mistake. Because pretending disinterest in Rand was an act of emotional abandonment when he really needed her. She chooses the manipulation tack with Rand out of an abundance of caution. But it's also just not in Moraine's nature to be straightforward. She's Kyrianan, and the only person in the world she's ever really been truly upfront with is Swan. And only when they were younger, like even now she's hiding things from her. She purposefully ends the interview with her early when Swan says to her, We have plans to make. Sit down. This won't be done quickly. I will send for wine and cheese. Moraine shook her head. We have been closeted alone too long already. If any did try listening and found your warding, they will be wondering already. It's not worth the risk. We can contrive another meeting tomorrow. 
Besides, my dearest friend, I cannot tell you everything, and I cannot risk letting you know I am holding anything back. Moraine was probably originally very glad that the dragon ended up being a common shepherd from nowhere, at least once she realized they weren't going to find him while he was still a child. In New Spring, when she and Swan are talking right after Guitara dies, Swan says, What can they do, Moraine? Even if they find him, what can they do? They can bring him to the tower, Moraine replied, putting more confidence into her voice than she felt. He can be protected here. She hoped he could. More than the Reds might want him dead or gentled, whatever the prophecies said. And educated. The Dragon Reborn would have to be educated. He would need to know as much of politics as any queen, as much of war as any general, as much of history as any scholar. Varen Sedai said that most mistakes made by rulers came from not knowing history. They acted in ignorance of the mistakes others had made before them. He can be guided. That would be the most important of all, to make sure that he made the right decisions. Since they didn't find him right away and bring him to the tower where he could be educated from the beginning, it might have been helpful for him to have been the son of a lord or a merchant or someone who could have had a very thorough education. But however helpful, she was probably very glad at first that he ended up being from nowhere because she would have assumed that his ignorance and his naivete would make him easier to control. But instead of a docile, easy-to-steer lamb, she gets someone who is stubborn and contrary, someone who's going to do whatever he wants, and he's bad at being afraid of people, even someone who is Aes Sedai for long, you know, so even in the beginning she gets resistance and backtalk, and while he's ignorant and he makes stupid choices based on that ignorance, he's not actually dumb, and she'd be foolish to think him so. I'm honestly curious how she was planning on talking the dragon into leaving the two rivers if she hadn't gotten the aid of Trollocs to let Rand know, yo, this is really urgent, you need to get the fuck out of here. I'm wondering if she had planned on hanging out for a long time and getting to know him and building trust. Were the coins she gave the boys supposed to be enough for her to convince them to go with her once she had established a rapport? I wonder... Since it took her almost 20 years to find him, she spent all of that time undoubtedly wondering how to deal with him and what he would be like, especially because as he got older and older, her job grew more and more fraught, because the closer he is to adulthood, the more he is his own person. She had to have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to manage him if he ended up being a giant fuckhead. And instead of a giant fuckhead, she gets a pretty sweet kid who's got a strong moral compass, like she didn't do too badly with him. And yet she makes all of these wrong choices in how she chooses to deal with him. I think because she planned for the worst, like operating on the assumption that the dragon reborn, there was a good chance he might be a garbage human, she didn't spend much time pondering how to build trust with him. She focused on how best to manipulate him instead to get the required results. And so she lets him down so badly when arguably he needs her support the most. She is a piss-poor mentor when he is first starting to see what's actually going on and what he's actually facing. Because rather than being straightforward and honest in the beginning when he was angry and frightened and upset, she chose to hold back from him and not talk to him. And in all fairness to Moraine, she had to decide on her how to deal with the dragon plan based upon her interactions with Rand between their flight from the two rivers and Shatter Logoth. 
and then after the eye of the world once he learns that he can channel when he is understandably upset and kind of flinging at her you know you'll be wanting to gentle me and balsamon told me the names of all these false dragons and i'm not going to be used so she knows a rand that doesn't trust her or any Aes Sedai. She knows a rand that's really upset because of Egwene. Like, basically, she stole his girlfriend, and Egwene's learning how to channel and wants to be an Aes Sedai. Maury knows a rand who's basically insinuating that she's a dark friend. And then at the end of it, she knows a rand that is accusing her of wanting to use him for a false dragon. She has no way of knowing that Rand's animosity toward her was gone after Shatter Logoth, that he appreciated her and missed her protection and was really happy to see her again in Caelan. And because he is understandably fucked up after the events of the Eye, he lashes out at her as the symbol of all the change and upheaval and chaos in his life over the past month. And Moraine is a big girl. She could have taken that on the chin. And she should have, because she fucked up when the boys were talking about leaving and running away to Ilium, and she just went full hammer and was sort of like, before I let the Dark One take you, I'll fucking kill you. Which, I get, you know, you're under a lot of stress, and it's a real concern, because, you know, if the boys slip away, that's bad news. But, whoa, whoa, you know, they're just, they're just kids, Moraine. They're kids. Chill. So, you know, that, that was a mistake. It was a mistake. And RJ was maybe looking at it from the perspective that even if you don't consent to fight in a war, you know, draftees, they aren't permitted to desert any more than volunteers are. And the punishment is just as severe. But when you want someone to trust you, and when your ability to do your job and help them depends on trust, I just... I wonder if things would have been different if Moraine had just flat out said to Rand while they were at the eye of the world and he was so upset, I am not going to want to gentle you. You are Taviran. The pattern isn't done with you. And I promise you, I do not want to use you as a false dragon. Just a flat out statement. I am on your side. What do you need from me? You know, yes, there are things I can't help you with. I can't help you when it comes to learning how to channel. I can't help you with those things. But I can listen. I can hear you. If she could have shown him some of the kindness that she showed Egwene, I think he would have responded to that. But I also wonder if maybe she wanted a bit of emotional detachment so it's just not too fucking heartbreaking. You know, especially because rather than being a giant piece of shit, like she no doubt feared that he might be, you know, you have to plan for the worst. He's honestly a really nice person and bonding with him emotionally, being the kind of mentor where you're really attached to someone like that, it can cloud your judgment. And so I can see the logic on her part of choosing to not talk to Rand the whole time that he wants to talk to her in Valdara likely out of fear of the questions that he alas, because, you know, pretending disinterest is easier. You cannot say the wrong thing if you say nothing. And in the end, she is not here to worry about Rand's feelers. She's here to save the world, and the bottom line, harsh as it might seem, is that what Rand wants doesn't matter. He was made for a purpose. He is the only one that can do the job. Everyone else is fucked otherwise if he won't do it. And so if he won't do it willingly, he'll have to be manipulated into it. 
When Swan asks if Rand, who is afraid of what he is and doesn't want power, will proclaim himself, Moraine says, I have the means to see him named Dragon, whether he wills it or not. And even if I somehow fail, the pattern itself will see him named Dragon, whether he wills it or not. Remember, he is to veer in Swan. He has no more control over his fate than a candle wick has over the flame. She doesn't do as she does with Rand, effectively freezing him out to be cold or to be cruel. I think it's a combination of reverse psychology to keep him near her and emotionally holding him at arm's length as a form of self-protection. Moraine is a very compartmentalized person. She does that to protect herself because she is a soldier. She can't afford to care about him too much because the sad truth is he exists to be fed to the wolves and having that be too painful could get in the way of her ability to do what she has to do as well. She can't let her feelings keep her from doing whatever she needs to do to make him do what he needs to do. But taking the tack that she does breaks trust with him, and in doing so, she fucks up royally. And I sometimes wonder, later on as we get Cad Swain's point of view in Book 8, I think, and she talks about how badly both Moraine and Swan fucked up, and she thinks about how if she could have just gotten Rand when he was an infant, how much better things would be. But the idea is really unappealing to her because you get the impression that she doesn't like babies at all, which, you know, I sympathize with. I don't like babies either. Um, the idea of Rand being raised by Cad Swain, she would have been like a really stern aunt, but she probably would have been reasonable and fair. And I wonder about it. I think she would have had the capacity to both love him, give him affection, and be honest with him at the same time, and be like, yo, boy, this is total bullshit, and it's gonna fucking suck, but it is what it is, and I'm not gonna lie to you about it. And in the end, when she becomes his advisor, she tells him, I'm gonna do what's best for you, not what's best for everyone else. But by then, Rand is so damaged that it's almost too late. And I'm not saying that that's Moraine's fault, because I don't think it necessarily is. I'm just saying that very early on, this fuck-up named Moraine fucked up, and trauma ensued. And the bottom line is that Wheel of Time is the type of story where, even if the first four words of my six-word description were heroes do everything right, it would still end with trauma ensues. Maybe, maybe it might be heroes do everything right, less trauma. And I can't help but feel bad for Rand. I love Moraine, and I think that so many of her choices are very much rooted in logic, but a lot of her choices are also rooted in her own failings as a person, and she lets Rand down. And because of how she behaves toward him right after he learns that he can channel, and how she behaves toward him in the month between the eye of the world and when he leaves to hunt the horn, it kind of paves the way for their difficult relationship. Up until the point that she realizes that she has to take drastic measures for him to even listen to her or trust her. And for that, she has no one but herself to blame. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. 
I really love the character of Moraine and it was fun to explore and I like her relationship with Rand and I'm gonna explore his side of the story I think next episode. You can uh, find me on Twitter at Warder Gray. That's Gray with an E. You can click there on the link to my Discord. You should come check that out. There's a channel there for other Wheel of Time Discords. And uh, you should look. There's a Wheel of Time fandom and calendar where you can find a million other content creators. And you should check that out. You should also check out Watt Trivia and Games. You can find a link to the Discord there. Or you can check that out at Trivia Watt. You can email me at podcastofthedragon at gmail.com. I'm happy to hear constructive criticism, answer any questions that you might have. You can put questions to me on my Discord, like anything. If you want to ask me anything. Uh, Totally down to hear ideas for future episode topics. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder. And if I wanted Rand to hang around Faldara, I would have just bought him a PlayStation or like a subscription to Pornhub Premium or something. I mean, Jesus, it's not that hard. Uh, That's not what your mom said, Moraine, but you know, whatever.